John Wertheim here. This is this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. This week, Jamie joins me for a grab bag of topics. We are midway through the ATP Finals, so hard to make uh, any definitive conclusions there, but we can talk about the, the matches that have been played so far. We'll talk about 2021 tennis and what the picture is looking like. It is slowly coming into focus, but still considerably uh, blurry and uncertain. We'll talk... Uh, WTA awards. There are no more women's tennis events on the calendar, but we can start uh, distributing some some honors and uh, just sort of a, a catch-all of tennis topics as we, I don't want to say limp to the finish, but we're not exactly sprinting either. A strange year that is uh, finishing under strange conditions, and uh, we talk about sort of where, where the sport is here in, in mid-November 2020. So, uh, Jamie, welcome. It's It's been a while. How are you? It's been a while. I'm good. I uh, I agree with you. It's a weird year, and I feel like we've been talking a lot about the ATP, and obviously the ATP finals are happening, so I am happy to start by uh, talking about the WTA and some of these awards. All right, let's go, there. Let's, uh, <clears throat> let's do that first. That's a good idea. Let's go to, uh, the, I mean, the WTA does not, uh, unlike the ATP, the WTA does not have a finals for 2020, unfortunately. That's... Um, an offshoot of having events in China where international sporting events were canceled months ago. So the men are playing as we speak in London and there is no, um, there, there is no comparable women's event. So let's say, uh, yeah, let's do that. Let's start with the women's season's over. Why don't we hand out some awards and then we can uh, pivot to London. Um, MVP award is, is always a bit strange, but if we're going to give player of the year honors, I, I feel like the player has to have won a major. Do you agree with that? Yes, definitely agree with that. But this year, of course, um, we had one less. And I think that I would also classify the majors into pre-corona and, and post-corona. I would almost give a little bit more weight or just feel like there's more discussion for all the majors that are not the Australian Open. You know, of course, that was when all was normal and before all of this happened. Um, but I know you, you went through your picks in your mailbag, but are you, who's your pick? I think, um, you know, it, it sounds, sounds a little funny. I, I think you've got to say that uh, Sonia Kennan is your 2020 MVP. She won a major and got to the final of another. Um, you know, if, if we play this game sometime, if your life depended on a player, uh, would, would she be your pick? And the answer, you know, is, is, is probably not. And do I think in a head-to-head match, there are players who are superior? If, if she and Naomi Osaka played 10 times, I would think Naomi Osaka would win the majority of those matches. But yeah, in this strange year, I mean, I think you're right. There was no Wimbledon. There, there was a U.S. Open, but it did not feature, you know, six of the top 10 players, in, including Ash Barty, the number one player, including you know, Simona Halep, including the defending champion. And that was, uh, that was won by Osaka. Then we had the French Open, which also did not feature Ash Barty, who was the defending champion, and did not feature Naomi Osaka. The Australian Open, before Corona, had the most flush field. Sonia Kennan won that, and she reached the final of the French Open. So she's the only player to have won a major and gotten to the final of another. And in this strange year, it's probably appropriate. We have a, a strange choice, but Sonia Sophia Kenyon is my uh, 2020 MVP. What about you? I, I hear you on that. And I, I think those are all good points. I, in you know, 
so that we aren't agreeing here on all of these and there's some uh, interest to this conversation, I'm going to take a different pick. I'm going to go with Naomi Osaka. And I think that um, in speaking about an MVP, sort of in the um, light of a lot of awards that are giving out at this time of the year, including SI's own award of sports person of the year. It's not just about what's happening, you know, on the court. It's just not about results per se. It's about other things that uh, this player has done. So I think that um, for me, I think Naomi Osaka, of course, like you said, Kenan, if you're just talking about reaching a final, winning a final um, in a major, she's done that. But Osaka has not only won, but also um, used her platform and she's spoken up and she's gone beyond the court. And I think that, you know, if you're talking, if you're looking at that list of choices here um, and you check the box with a major win. And for me, you check the box with all the other outside stuff uh, off the court that she's done. So that's my pick. Oh, I like that idea. Um, no, I, I think you're right. I think we need to uh, expand criteria this year, especially. Exactly. Um, I, don't know, I don't know if you saw, I'm trying to find this. There was a big ad age star about, uh, a big ad age story about Naomi Osaka and how a- activism has sort of, you know, she she filled the space. And um, I'll, tr- I'll try and post this story on our, on our show notes. She also became the highest paid female athlete the, right. the highest income of any female athlete overtaking Serena Williams. Um, I'm, I'm with you on that. I mean, and, and she, she won a major decisively. She had her, her Cincinnati moment when she also reached the final of that event. And I, I also think um, I, I will bolster your point and uh, say that uh, apart from everything she did off court and really, and I, th- I think some of this was, at the start of the year, you might have said this, this was out of character. I mean, that Naomi Osaka would not have been your number one choice to have emerged as tennis's great advocate and social justice advocate right. um, as the year progressed. And I think the fact that it in no way came at, at a price to her tennis also added to this. I mean, after the, you know, she, after the moment in Cincinnati, she went on and, and won the U S open for the second time. So the, the fact that um, this, activism streak did, did not seem to have any impact on her tennis uh, I, I think is significant too I'll, I'll buy that so yeah. um good, I would say also that that 2020 I think and and you you make a good point about saying at the beginning of this year I think this was a real growth year for her I feel like we've talked about this a little bit but um she really seemed to mature on and off the court this year and I thought I think we saw it happen sort of in, in real time in many ways, uh, especially over the summer. So I think, um, you know, if we talk about MVP in terms of just uh, emerging in a certain way, I think like she also gets a, a nod there too, so. How athlete, activist, and next-gen marketing magnate Naomi Osaka aces her brand partnerships. There, there's a headline, but that's from, <laughs> that's from Adweek. That's from Adweek this week, and um, I, I think, that sort of in its convoluted way encapsulates it. And I think, I think this year, I mean, someone, someone asked me a question, the di- digression here, but someone sent in a mailbag question, which I, I didn't answer yet because I'm still sort of wrestling with it. Was I surprised that Serena Williams was, was not more vocal? And basically, basically the question essentially said, how did Serena Williams sort of get her activist lunch eaten by Naomi Saka? How did she get overcome? How did she sort of get uh, s- surmounted by Naomi Saka as becoming this, this voice? And I think, you know, p- people 
wear their activism differently, sometimes lightly and sometimes heavily. I, I think it's very much an individual choice and it's really perilous to start questioning why people didn't say more or why somebody should have said less. I mean, I think people are processing this, this strange year and these strange moments um, individually and we, we ought to respect choice. But I, I think embedded in that question is, is this idea, and I think it's, it's, this, this is a valid point, that Naomi Saka is not who you would have picked necessarily, not who you would have predicted to sort of go out there and ignore trolls and, and speak her mind. And um, I, I think you're right. It's interesting if we're sort of – MVP is always one of these uh, ill-defined terms. Player of the year is always one of these ill-defined terms. But I think uh, Naomi Osaka revealed a lot about herself and picked up a, a third major, which uh, makes her a lock for the Hall of Fame. It was it's a very significant strange year for, for Naomi Osaka. So you've, uh, you've converted me. Um, what about uh, the, the WTA sort of gave us these categories and, and right. they're um, – they're, they're, you know, you never quite know where to draw these dividing lines. I mean, who, who is a newcomer and, and who's a player who just maybe was there? They, they weren't necessarily new, but they elevated their game. Um, I mean, it, it does seem like if we have this newcomer award, it, it can't not go to Iga Svantec, even if this wasn't technically her, her rookie year. Um, what, what about in that category? Yeah, so I was going to ask you about the the – difference here between newcomer and most improved player. So they have newcomer as a player who made a top 100 debut or some sort of notable accomplishment for the first time. Whereas most improved was a player who finished inside the top 50 and showed significant improvement. So I don't know. I, it's difficult. I, I don't know why uh, Shvatek is not in the newcomer category as well as the most improved, but I agree with you. I think if this was renamed as sort of a breakout or a breakthrough player, um, you know, surprise, surprise of the year. I mean, we could call it a lot of different things, but I think she hands down wins that. Agreed. I mean, not, not even close. And I think, um, you know, he, here was a player with a very decorated junior career. And as you say, she was in the main draw. I mean, she was, I mean, sometimes we see players that have these extraordinary junior careers really struggle with the transition. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't quite that. I mean, she was in matches and, and had, you know, play, played a nice match here and there. But it was at the point where even she was considering how long am I willing to uh, devote myself to this life? And there's, there's plenty other interests I have that I can nourish. And then she just played two weeks of, absolutely dazzling tennis and never had that moment where that never sort of had that that holy shit moment I'm a, I'm a few sets from winning a major I mean just sustained it throughout and was as dominant in the final against Kennan as, as she was in her early round matches remember she she beat Simona Halep and everybody sort of said well that's that's an incredible hour of tennis she played let's see if she sustains it and you know what she did and I think now that the questions quickly became how many more does she have in her and uh who's basically basically this this went from uh boy she's playing well to is this really a, a new star with some sustaining star power because uh that was 14 sets played and 14 sets won and that was an extraordinary high level of tennis and um for to do that for seven matches was was quite a state so uh yeah i you know the, these categories are always a little fuzzy and it's not like conventional sports where you have a rookie class Right. But if this is sort of a catch-all, which star really elevated and had this breakthrough, I think this is, uh, 
this was this one's a no-brainer. What about um, I mean, speaking of vague categories and distinctions, what what about comeback player of the year? Uh, three of the four choices the WTA gave us: Azarenka, Karankova, Tig, um, and, and the fourth was Laura Siegman. The first three of those are mothers, which I think is interesting and significant, um, and, and a different twist that we're used to on comeback, which tends to be a player who's been injured and has a successful uh, re return. Um, who's, who's your winner in the comeback category? Yeah, the, the description there has, uh, you know, says a ranking that has dropped due to injury or personal reasons. So, um, you know, for the, the WTA, it uh, feels like this can continue to be a category with a lot of mothers in it. But I, I think I have to go with Azarenka. It's hard not to choose her. She didn't just come back from, you know, her maternity leave this year. So I think that's one point to make. But she almost won another major after being away from that part of the game for so long. And she really just dominated. And we saw flashes of an old player that we hadn't seen in a long time. So if you're talking about comeback and a return, I think that, you know, she defines that for 2020 for sure. That was, uh, that was my choice as well. And we, we talk about it all the time in, in tennis. It's such a, a mental sport and then the psychological wear and tear and mental fatigue and spiritual fatigue. And what Victoria Azarenka has, has gone through in, in a number of ways, um, her maternity situation, some bad draws, some, uh, some really high level of, of tennis, but then it's, it's dropped in her subsequent match. I mean, she's been through a lot and to emerge as a player now firmly in the top 20 came a few games away from winning her third major and seems like kind of a, a, a sage. This is a, a, a wise woman of women's tennis. Um, I, um, I, I think she's, no, no, no contest here. She is, uh, she's our comeback player. What about? Um, I'll give you an easy one, which is women's doubles, um, which really just. I think we can kind of go go to the stat sheet on that one. Yes. And uh, Christina Mladenovic and, and Tamia Babos of of Hungary won two, two of the three majors and uh, probably should have won a third. I don't know if there's much to discuss there. Um, let me give you. Uh, let me give you two that were um let me give you two that were not on the list which is uh one of them do you, do you have a match of the year hmm. i'll give you uh i'll give you i'll give you mine and you can uh agree or disagree but i would i would fold in the u.s open women's semis naomi osaka jen brady serena and uh, victoria azarenka which um you know was what probably a favorite day of tennis in a long time i mean just two well-played, high-quality, well-contested uh, matches. I think we ought to uh, tip a cap to Jen Brady. She doesn't necessarily fit tidily into any of the categories, but she ought to come in for, uh, for, for some, for some plaudits, for some applause um, with her 2020. Definitely. And that, that day of, I mean, that's, that's my favorite day of tennis, certainly of the year and, and of a long time. That was uh, just two back-to-back -back matches, four players, four different styles, all of them well contested, all of them really high level from a, a drama standpoint, from a stat sheet standpoint, all the more so given that there wasn't a crowd that could add context. Um, if, if I had a match of the year, I would expand the category and make it a night of the year. I like that. I like that. Right. I think that's good. I, I was going to actually go to the U.S. Open too um, and, and just go back to Naomi Osaka. I think 
one of the most powerful things for me was when she, you know, first came out and she just said that um, she, you know, she had these, these seven masks, right? And I, as soon as she said that, you, of course, uh, I immediately, my mind just went to, you know, reading that, fast forwarding, you know, to the end of the, the tournament and just reading that, that article that, that had, um, you know, a, a seven mask, seven matches sort of lead to it. And uh, for me, I think that what was most incredible about her winning um, in that tournament was that she didn't let that distract her. I think a lot of other players, um, you know, would have felt that immense pressure to like continue and to, you know, get all seven, seven masks worn and to, you know, really put a stamp on everything she was doing during that time. And so, um, you know, we, we talk about Azarenka and everything. And I just think that definitely stands out for me. Um, also just the fact that that tournament in general was, you know, our first major back also just makes it significant. You know, about the seven masks, um, a member of her camp suggested to me that it really wasn't, I mean, it sounds almost like a flex. It sounds sort of like, a a bit of a statement, I'm going to be here. And the way it was explained to me is that it was almost inadvertent that um, Naomi Osaka, obviously very moved about the events of the summer. I mean, we should mention she went as a, you know, not, not a celebrity delegation. I mean, she went as a concerned citizen to Minneapolis to protest uh, George Floyd. And this, this business of, I, I've worn a mask, each of them adorned with uh, you know, someone else who suffered at the hands of police. This was not done as any sort of statement to the rest of the field. I mean, this was just something she sort of said, the, the way this, this was explained to me, this was sort of said offhandedly. And she had these masks made, but it wasn't even uh, meant necessarily as the, the statement that we all interpreted it as. But then, of course, she was able to, to wear each of those seven as she advanced to the finals and then won, won in the finals. Um, again, I mean, I think Naomi Osaka becomes suddenly one, one of the really intriguing figures in, uh, in, in all of sports right now. And she hasn't played since the U.S. Open, but it will be interesting to see what, uh, what 2020 brings. Let me ask you one more category question, which is almost more uh, a philosophical question than, than anything else. Um, if Naomi Osaka, or as I had had it, uh, Sonia Kennan is our MVP, can you have a coach of the year as anyone other than that player's coach? If, talk if, about so this. if, uh, you know, if, if Simona Holop is not your MVP, can Darren Cahill still be your coach of the year? Discuss. Yeah, I think you can, I think you can switch. I think, um, I think it makes sense to align with the MVP of the year, but of course, as we just sort of showed, there's there's a lot of disagreement and there's you know a few players in that conversation for for player of the year. I also think that you can look to comeback player or um, you know newcomer of the year with Svatek to to their coaches and also um, recognize them because I think uh, you one could argue that a player who is outside of the top fifty or you know hasn't been on the Grand Slam stage ever or in a long time needs a lot more work and a lot more coaching uh, to get to the point that they did than a player who perhaps had already been in the top, you know, three rankings or has already won two majors. So I think there's, um, you know, uh, a devil's advocate argument there. And I, I would say that 
perhaps a player who is not as high of a ranking, who has not won a major, um, may actually have less coaching uh, to do than some of the others. What are your thoughts? Um, I mean, I think one of them is that mid-match coaching is illegal. And uh, I, I would feel a little funny about giving this award to Sonia Kennan's father just by virtue of how often he is sanctioned for uh, what is a rule infraction. Um, I think I'm also a little – I mean, it's, I, I always feel like with tennis, you know, it's, it's the player that's out there. And I use you know, Jen Brady as an example. Like, her coach – Michael Gessler clearly has done a nice job with her and clearly her ranking speaks for itself in that elevation, but let's celebrate Jen Brady. I mean, she, she's the one that's out there and she's the one that's uh, alone on the court and hitting the shots and on the treadmill. And in her case, going to Germany during the pandemic and improving on clay um, in an individual sport. I, I feel like we, we need to devote the most of our, uh, you know, de devote the majority of our attention on the player that's actually out there getting it done. I also wonder if this is a category that should not be expanded as well. I'd, I'd be inclined to give a, you know, if there's a sports psychologist of the award, award of the year, um, you know, <laughs> Dario Bromowitz, who worked with uh, Schwantek and Schwantek credited uh, so effusively, um, is, is someone who probably comes in for acknowledgement. But uh, the, the, the coaching I have a bit of an issue with, sometimes because just the, the coaches are violating the rules, which is not um, something – perhaps we ought to be honoring, but also let's, let's give Serena Williams credit and let's give, uh, you know, whoever, let's, let's give Andre Rublev credit. Let's not go overboard on the coach who may play an essential role, but in an in individual sport, let's, let's give the actual athlete uh, the majority of the credit. Um, I like but, your idea yeah. about, about honoring sort of the, the specialty coach, if you will, um, you know, not just the, the regular day-to-day -day coach. I think, those, those types of coaches perhaps deserve some sort of recognition um, because of just how, how, whether it's for a specific fitness, whether it's for, um, you know, mental fitness, as, as you mentioned, um, I think they do. But uh, as I'm saying this, I will go back to say that it's also on the player themselves to hire that person and to seek out that person. Whereas, you know, maybe in a, in a team setting, that psychologist is someone that's available to the whole team and it's already there. That person has been vetted and hired by a team organization. Whereas, you know, in tennis, that player has to go out and, you know, uh, see, seek out that, that person and decide that they need that person, which I think is a really big step. So um, I am contradicting myself as I say what I said, but I, I think it's a really interesting topic overall. Yeah, you, you could expand that to, um, you know, it's Pierre Paganini and Gevard Grish and, and Mimo. You could expand that to, to trainers and other members of, of the team that play uh, an essential role that we, we may not necessarily know from watching a player perform on court. Um, all right, let's, uh, so those are our WTA awards. Again, very, very strange year. I, I think what we're seeing is that in 2020, whether it is tennis, whether it is Sports Illustrated Sports Person of the Year, whether it's the Nobel Prize that's going to be given out in, in Stockholm, but streaming live on YouTube in December. Strange year for these year-end awards, but, you know, there also were some extraordinary performances, and they ought to be acknowledged, uh, which, I mean, I think the, the pivot here is to men's tennis. And right now, in London, we have the ATP finals. I would submit to you, Jamie, we have uh, 
Um, a, a player in Dominic team who won a major and reached the final of another major. We have a player in Novak Djokovic who won a major and reached the final of another. I, I would submit to you that um, if either team or Djokovic wins this event in London, that would uh, that would tip the balance. So I think it's hard to give an MVP award in, in men's tennis uh, right now when we still have this important event undecided. Yes, we shall wait, I guess, another another week or so when we return on the podcast and discuss the men's awards. I think we got to wait until the ATP finals are over. But I will say, as someone brought up this uh, topic in your in your mailbag this week about the ATP finals and just the overall idea of how they feel. And, and, you know, I think someone mentioned that it feels more like a, an exhibition than, than anything else. And I know that at this time of year, some people are really into the, the ATP finals and others um, don't necessarily see it uh, as, as a um, tournament that's similar to a major, just because some people don't decide not to play or maybe because of the format. And you talked about this a little bit, but um, I'm with you in a sense that I think the the ATP finals has this strange feeling to it. I think the fact that um, you've got all these players, uh, you know, top players and they're, they're playing this round robin format, but then also they have to play, um, single elimination after that it's it's all very strange and i do think that some players hold the title the year-end title higher than others you know uh, of course if nadal i think he's really uh wanting to win this because it's sort of the one big hole on his resume right now um but for others we've seen people skip it you know because they they they've already done it and maybe don't want to do it again so um for me this is always such an interesting uh tournament but this year given the fact that we did not play tennis all year and we had this interruption and and this time off i think i i might hold a little bit more value to to it this year because these players haven't played and maybe this acts as that fourth major but what are, what are your thoughts um, yeah, it's, you know, even in a conventional year, as you say, it's it's always been a bit of a strange event for me. I mean, on the one hand, it's, these, these are the eight best players. And if you had to somehow norm matches for ranking of the opponent, this would be an extraordinary event. I mean, you literally don't play a match against anyone outside the top 10. And that's in and of itself uh, extraordinary. I think the the surface is always a little bit strange. I mean, this is an indoor event, uh, mostly based on time of year. Well, there are no majors played indoors. So on the one hand, it's it's this democratic surface. It makes for good tennis, but it's a little strange that you're seeing these matches played on a surface on on which none of the four biggest events are, are played. And I'm always hung up by this round robin. And I think one thing that really makes tennis special, it's, it's maddening if you run a tournament, it's maddening if you have a, a financial stake in this, but this winner go home, this survive in advance, single elimination, every match matters because there's no way to uh, play a crappy round of golf on Thursday and make it up on Friday and make the cut. I mean, in a conventional event, the fact that every match could be your, your exit, I think is really significant. I mean, you, you get to the third set and it's four all and it's basically your 
eight points from going back to the locker room and packing your bags and getting a flight out of town or you advance. And when that is absent, when you have these round robin matches and you have Djokovic lost, but he could advance if X, Y, and Z happens, it just changes the whole, the whole vibe. And, uh, you know, this year, especially it's, it's the last year in London. There are no fans here. Um, the r- rankings are in a strange position. Roger Federer is not there. I mean, it's, it's not your conventional year end event, but I think even in the best of years, it's always been a strange event to me. On the other hand, it's often furnished some terrific tennis. It's always interesting to me which players um, in November still have, uh, you know, still, still have some gas in the tank, which players are, are finishing strong. And it's a real statement about durability to play at a high level and win tight matches in November after this interminable season. And it's also, you know, I, I think it's, it's a little vulgar, but this also is, is a big moneymaker for, for both of the tours. I mean, even early this summer, I was being told that basically the, the ATP was going to finish, uh, you know, with a profit provided London happens, and it was going to be a loss year if London were canceled. I'm not sure quite how the math uh, is going to break, given that London is happening, but without a single ticket being sold but um no it's it's a strange event i mean the tours rely on these events uh to you know in a lot of ways these are the biggest line item in the budgets and sometimes the tennis is brilliant sometimes the tennis is not brilliant sometimes you have players playing half-heartedly because of this round robin format um but i think this year it's sort of in some ways it's especially strange and in some ways it's especially significant because uh Again, I, I think players are playing for a lot. And I think if, uh, if, if Novak Djokovic were to win this, it would be a real statement and he would be our 2020 MVP. If Dominic Thiem were to win it, same, same thing for him. I mean, that match against Nadal was one of the best matches I've seen uh, in, in recent memory. But these year-end finals are, are always a, a bit strange, despite the fact that you have an unprecedented field. I mean, there, there's no other event that has top players and no one else and no easy matches and no buys and no qualifiers. I mean, it's in some ways a very extraordinary event. And in some ways that the round Robin makes it feel a little strange for me. So that's, yep, uh, that's, that's my filibuster. Um, <laughs> let's, let's quickly talk uh, so, so other topics real quick as we wait for these matches. I mean, right now, as, uh, as we record this, Dominic team is playing uh, against Andre Rublev. So, this is uh these are all live issues and I don't I don't want to make this too obsolete. Um, do you have thoughts? I mean, what are the sort of non-tennis stories uh, here? Is Sasha Zverev and these allegations that continue to dog him? We've talked about this in a number of contexts. Do you have uh, I don't know if you and I have talked about this. You, you have thoughts on this the, the Zverev situation? Yeah, you've uh, touched on this a lot in in the mailbag, and I you know I think the fact that the ATP has made a statement finally. Um, that was sort of something on my mind that was frustrating. And as you uh, talked about in your mailbag and you talked about on the podcast with, with Ben Rothenberg, I think, you know, it, it's really um, different from how other sports would, would handle this. And um, I just, the whole situation is, is very unfortunate and, and truly um, I wish that, Zarev handled it in a, in a different way. You know, I, I feel like this year um, at the U.S. Open, we really 
thought, okay, wow, like, you know, he, he's there and he actually had, you know, a, a real chance to, to win that title and he didn't, but he was there. And maybe this is sort of the breakthrough where, you know, next time he, he finally wins that, that first major title. But um, for me, this just shows that he uh, is not maturity wise. He's just not there yet. And he's just not, um, you know, I, I, I look to guys like Federer and Nadal that um, have really shown such a just maturity, but also um, the way that they handle themselves inside the game, outside the game with other players. There's just a, this, this general respect that we, we understand that we see from the other players. And at one point I know that Federer had sort of taken Zarev under his wing or they had, you know, these conversations. And I thought that that had maybe helped him in certain ways. But again, for me, this just, um, this just shows me that he's not there yet. And I think these allegations are, are very serious. And I, I kind of don't like that he's playing while this is all sort of, up in the air and and um, being investigated. So for me, that that makes it hard to to watch him and 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 uh, you know, it gives the ATP Finals just a, a strange more even more of a strange feeling uh, than normal. It, it's you know it's an unpleasant fact pattern to put it mildly to uh, to start with. I mean, I, th I think you're right. I think one of the real issues here is that there's just no policy in the ATP's statement I don't think necessarily helps matters. I mean, the, the idea that um, sort of everyone's hamstrung until there's some legal activity, until charges are filed, I, I'm not, that seems to me uh, both cowardly and also at odds with, with a certain reality, which is there are reasons why women who are abused don't call police. There are a lot of times when women decide that for, for a variety of reasons, they're not eager to cooperate with law enforcement. I think in this case, you know, it, it's the middle of a pandemic. Resources are finite. You have a, a player not based in the U.S. You have an alleged victim not based in the U.S. Um, there, there are reasons why this would not necessarily trigger a, a criminal complaint or an investigation from New York authorities. That doesn't necessarily... Um, you know, I, I don't think that necessarily exonerates anyone. I, I do have some sympathy for Zverev in the sense that you're, you're faced with these questions. I, I mean, I remember in law school, you sort of have this, uh, when, when did you stop having an extramarital affair? I mean, there are questions that become very hard to, uh, to answer. And, you know, there, there are a limited number of responses he could have. It would be nice if he acknowledged the severity. It would be nice if he acknowledged generically that, that he uh, is repulsed by any allegation of domestic violence. I mean, all of his responses have been very sort of narcissistic and, and me-centered, and I'm not sure exactly. it's, it's a great look to have him you know, looking at his notes app or reading his phone. At the same time, you know, this is a serious allegation. These are serious charges with serious impact on his career. Um, it, it's understandable why he would want to play it pretty close to the vest. But I mean, I think the, the big problem here is just that there's no real policy. I mean, I think a, a policy would, I think it's the right thing to do. I think it would make the tour's job easier that they could point to something and not, and not have these ad hoc statements, but it also a firm policy would help Zverev in that he would know what the expectations were. He would know a timetable. 
Um, as it stands now, we just seem to sort of be at this stalemate where no one appears like they're going to do anything until there's actual legal activity, until there are actual charges right. or a, a police investigation. I don't think that's necessarily likely. I mean, the alleged victim has already said that she doesn't want that. So, you know, if you're the Southern District of New York or if you're the NYPD, it's the middle of a pandemic, you're going to have to fly across ocean to have an in-person interview. I, I'm not sure, you know, r realistically charges are going to come from this, but I don't think that necessarily ought to for foreclose any other investigation or, uh, I mean, I, I think that's pretty soft. Um, I mean, we can think of a number of cases in a number of other sports where there's been suspension and investigation, even, even when there hasn't been a formal police report. But no, I mean, I, I think it's, uh, it's deeply unfortunate. I think it's going to be something very hard for Zverev to recover from. I mean, these are very serious, specific allegations. I think you're right. You, you mentioned better and Nadal and, you sort of go down the expand this and it's Murray and Djokovic and I mean every star player on the women's tour as well I mean it's very rare that we've seen a star player in tennis have to deal with something like this mid-career so I think um, a, a lot of people are sort of caught flat-footed that ba bad behavior in tennis usually means something uh, a point penalty uh, is, is the punishment it's not something where we're um, waiting for criminal charges to be filed so um Right. Anyway, it seems to me we're, we're sort of at a standstill and it becomes incumbent on fans and sponsors. We keep talking about this Adidas deal at some level, the tours at some level. It'll be interesting to see what the reception is when Zverev plays a live match. It'll be interesting to see what the reception is when there's a, a, a joint event and his female colleagues he'll have to interact with. The media has a role in this. I mean, it's just going to be interesting. It seems like we're at a standstill in terms of the fact pattern. It's just going to be interesting to see sort of, you know, to, to, to what extent people pursue this informally and to what extent this, this fades away, but it's, um, it's, it, it's ugly stuff. And those were, um, those were serious specific allegations with, with other people weighing in and the initial Instagram account. She then went further with Ben Rothenberg who spoke to her face to face. Um, it's, I, I said this uh, in print and I think I said this to Ben too. I mean, it's, it's wrongheaded to think this is he, he said, she said. I mean, that's, this, this is not a coin flip. So um, anyway, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but I'm not sure what more we can, we can really add at this point. Um, Novak Djokovic is uh, apparently trying to rejoin the ATP board. Um, heard different variations of this. This, of course, uh, a few months after he, resigned from the board along with Pospisil and uh, founded the PTPA, which had a, a fairly dramatic photo and, and press conference during the U.S. Open on the, on the eve of the tournament at the grandstand, but never really seemed to have done much since. So now uh, it's, I've, I've heard two different variations of this. Uh, one is sort of a, a big tent in the ATP trying to uh, explain to Djokovic that some of his concerns, which they share as well are best addressed uh, working in the tent and not outside the tent. We'll see how this pans out. And then Jamie, real quick, I just think, um, again, I, I hope this will be dated by the time people listen to it. It will be obsolete, but right now in the last 24 hours, um, it does seem like there are some complications in terms of the Australian open uh, 2021. I don't know if you have, yeah, have thoughts on that or saw the, the memo. 
Yeah, so um, the memo is that there will be no traveling to Australia in December, correct? Yes, essentially, yeah. And uh, while a 14-day quarantine still remains uh, on the right. books. So, um, so the idea that we were talking about that these players might have to spend Christmas, you know, or, or go over in mid-December so that they have time to not only have the, you know, do the quarantine period, but also get ready for uh, any lead-up tournaments in Australia. And then, of course, the Australian Open is, seems like it's not going to happen. And I guess now the, the lead-up tournaments themselves are in question because they are not going to be spread around the country as they normally would be, but concentrated. Um, and the the travel restrictions are still um, a question and I think the fact that cases are rising in other areas while in uh, Melbourne and Australia they have really flattened and I don't think they've had any new cases in quite um, you know a few weeks so uh, that's a little concerning for me uh, ahead of the Australian Open um, just given the fact that it always comes so quickly. I mean, January 1st, we're, we're playing tennis again, you know, and and I just don't know if that's going to happen given that we're in late November here and now we're not even sure if we can travel to Australia until January 1st. It uh, This is in keeping with the times, but um, I, I, a lot of people seem to have been caught by surprise with this uh, with announcement. And look, I mean, health, health and safety and the virology comes first. As you say, Melbourne hasn't had a positive test in three weeks. Um, and they seem to be, uh, there, there's a level of, of social trust and public trust. And there's a, a spirit of like, we, we need to deal with this virus before we start talking about marketing and commerce and lockdowns. I think it's going to be very hard optically if, um, you know, if special exceptions are made for, for an international tennis tournament. Uh, so someone made the point that, you know, there, there are Australian citizens who are stranded throughout the world who aren't able to return home on account of this COVID protocol. It's going to be a little strange if uh, Andre Rublev and, and Dominic Team are allowed to get to Australia before actual citizens. Um, at the same time, the Australian Open has, has gone ahead with plans. And I, you know, I have friends in Melbourne who, uh, will, will we be seeing you at the tennis, implying that they will be there. So. I, I do think that um, this has caught a lot of people by surprise in the sense everyone thought the Australian Open was uh, good to go. I mean, just to sort of cl clear up and, and take these off the table, the Australian Open cannot get moved. It will not be played uh, at the Indian Wells Tennis Garden. My strong suspicion is that it will still happen and there will be uh, maybe some quarantine. So somebody had raised the point, an agent had actually texted me and said, do you think they could even quarantine during the tournament, which um, I, seems to me a little at odds with the idea of a quarantine, but there may be some fancy footwork in, in terms of timing. I mean, initially the quarantine players were going to be consigned to hotel rooms. They were still going to be able to practice and go to facilities during this December quarantine. Um, other events, first two weeks of the year are, are likely imperiled, but I, I still... I, if my math is right, there's still a way for this all to happen. But um, this this clearly was not what Tennis Australia was expecting. They've been pretty good, it seems, staying in communication with, with players and uh, 
and managers and agents, but everyone was sort of, look, I, I had an airline ticket to, uh, people have told me this. They said, look, I, I had my whole travel plan made to go to Australia in mid-December, and now uh, that's, that's all changed. The plus side with Tennis Australia was quick to note was players can now spend the holidays at home and they don't have to worry about having Christmas dinner uh, at a Marriott, but it's, um, it's, it's been a strange, it's been a strange announcement, but I do think Australia's record on, on COVID speaks for itself. And if this is going to preserve health and safety of a country, it's, it's a little hard to uh, clamor too loudly for, for tennis tournaments. Definitely. Definitely. You can't, can't argue with that. Um, all right, let's, uh, we are running up against, uh, our hour here in coming weeks. We'll have, uh, an, another guest. We will also do our men's year end awards. We'll have some, uh, some results from this last ATP finals held at the O2 in London. And, uh, hopefully we'll have some happier news about tennis in 2020. If nothing else, we should have some more clarity about the 2021 Australian open. Uh, Jamie, always a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Good chatting with you. You as well. We'll do it again next week. Uh, thanks everyone for listening and keep the guest suggestions coming. Subscribe, leave a review, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, have a good week, everyone. And uh, we'll do it again after Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm.